sort of, like until winter makes like round three comeback. Uh, but we're going to enjoy it while it lasts. Um, if you are new here, you have joined us in the midst of our Lent series. Uh, we are journeying through the wilderness. If you're unfamiliar, Lent is this season in the church calendar in which we spend 40 days in prayer, in fasting, in repentance, discovering what it is to journey to the cross with Jesus. And so as we go towards Easter, as we move towards Easter, may our hearts be filled with gratitude. May we recognize that our God is as much the God of the wilderness as he is the God of the mountaintop. Randy, thanks for sharing such a story. I didn't know this woman, but even just thinking through the wherewithal to spend your final moments thanking God for the people you interacted with. That's the kind of faith we're hoping to build. That's the kind of faith spoken of in the life of Jesus, a life that looks towards the future, a life that's appreciative of the people we get to interact with. And that's what a Lent season teaches us. That when suffering crashes into our life and we wonder where God is, Lent is this annual practice that helps us discover and find his presence in our wilderness. And today we will reflect on fasting in the wilderness. Eugene Peterson calls spiritual disciplines like abstinence and fasting voluntary disaster. <laughs> voluntary disaster. Instead of waiting for suffering to come crashing into our life, instead of waiting for pain and hardship we voluntarily withdraw. We voluntarily go without in order to experience God's mercy in the midst of lack. But going without does not come naturally to us as Americans, does it? Going without is a strange and foreign concept because we live by phrases like, the heart wants what the heart wants. Does anybody know the origins of this phrase? Yes? Okay, Corbin. Of course, the other nerd in the room knows it with me. <laughs> the heart wants what the heart wants. In 1992, the director, Woody Allen, is being interviewed by Time magazine about his affair with Soon Yin Priven. There's some debate about how the story goes, but the basic storyline is this. Throughout the 70s, Alan had an on-again, off-again affair with the actress Mia Farrow. At the same time, Farrow and her then-husband, Andre Previn, would be adopting several children from across the globe, one of which was seven -year a seven-year-old girl from South Korea named Soon Yin. In 79, Farrow would end up leaving her husband for Woody Allen, and throughout the 80s and 90s, the eclectic Pharaoh Allen crew would grace the magazine covers. They would be the tabloid who's who. It was this eclectic group. And in the early 80s, Pharaoh and Allen would have a son together. As years went, Pharaoh and Allen's relationship would deteriorate. Until one day, Pharaoh found pictures of Sun Yin in the nude on Alan's fireplace. 
Alan was 56. Sunyan was 21. To be clear, Alan had been dating Sunyan's mother for the better part of two decades and had basically been her father. Woody Allen and Sunyan Previn would continue to date and get married, transforming Allen from a dad into a brother-in-law and Sunyan from a sister into a stepmother. A sexual escapade that steps over nearly every sexual boundary and almost revels in its disruption of the norm. And in this interview with the Times, as they ask him, as they probe for any sense of remorse, Alan's words are, the heart wants what the heart wants. And this has become the philosophy of a generation. A self-justifying phrase to legitimize anything from boundary-crossing sexual experiences Chocolate cake. The heart wants what the heart wants. And the result of living by such a philosophy is that we find ourselves in a wilderness of competing desires. We constantly feel the conflict of wanting a committed relationship, but also wanting random sexual encounters. We feel the conflict of wanting our stomachs to be full, but also to be flat. Of wanting to be sober, but aching for another drink. We long to belong to a community that truly knows us, but we shy away opting for another night at home with takeout and Netflix because it's easier than the effort of being known. To be human is to experience a complex web of desires, a knot of appetites that live in our gut. We all know the experience of wanting one thing and wanting the exact opposite all at the same time. And some of these desires are right, healthy, and God-given, while other desires are disordered, nefarious, and self-destructive. In Freudian thought, this is called the pleasure principle. The pleasure principle is decision-making that works towards immediate gratification and the avoidance of pain in order to satisfy biological or psychological needs. It is to do whatever feels good in the moment. Typically, we reserve the pleasure principle for adolescents and for children, but what has quickly become the norm is you do you. Whatever feels right in the moment, pursue it. And we are constantly encouraged to gratify those immediate desires, right? Today, you will likely see over 4,000 ads all aimed at getting you to act quickly, to purchase this thing, to find your happiness in a product. We're constantly encouraged to gratify these immediate desires, but in doing so, we sacrifice our deeper desires. Our deepest desire, our soul-level longing to live a life of beauty, a life of justice, a life of love and peace characterized by life with our God. 
This is what we long for at the deepest level of our being, but our deepest longings aren't always our strongest longings, are they? Sometimes and often our strongest desires are in direct conflict, beckoning us towards self-destructive habits, prioritizing ego and pleasure over all else. In the language of the New Testament, the pleasure principle, this move towards instant gratification, goes under the ominous title, the flesh. The Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. Now there's a long history of misreading this term flesh as your physical body. But the Apostle Paul would be the first to argue that your physical body is not what is inherently bad or evil. Rather, the flesh is best described as disordered desires, sinful inclinations, animalistic instincts that prioritize your survival appetites or desires over all else. The flesh is the desire for instant gratification. And these disordered desires that are often experienced in our body, but it is a mistake to say that your body is simply your desire for instant gratification. Because we all know we can say no. We all know that we have the ability to resist. So it's not true to say that these two are the same. You are much more than that. Welcome to church. I had a bunch of jokes planned, but the whole mic thing messed me up. Because we're just launching right into the deep end of recognizing that we all have disordered desires that live right here in our gut. That beckon us and move us and drive us. And as we look to Jesus, the one who we believe had the best information on living I believe that his practice of fasting, yes, fasting, can help us refine, help us cultivate, and help us clarify our desires. For fasting is a practice that can help us fight the flesh and feed on the spirit. Now, as we talk about fasting, I want to offer a brief definition Fasting is the practice of going without food and drink, excluding water, for a period of time, typically a short period of time. I will talk about an instance of Jesus going 40 days and 40 nights. Up front, right here, right now, I am not calling any of us to go 40 days and 40 nights without food. Um, if you would like to try that, there's a lot of conversations you need to have, first of all, starting with a medical professional. I'm not calling for that. Rather, fasting in the general sense is typically a 12 to 24 hour period of going without food, going without drink, again, excluding water. 
I know there are a variety of practices that are typically called fasting, things like giving up social media or TV or eating a restricted diet. And while none of that is bad, I want to insist that fasting be defined specifically as going without food. Because I've found in my short time pastoring is if going without food is just one item on, pun intended, a menu of sorts, it is the one in which we leave behind. We'll give up social media, we'll give up TV, but we won't necessarily give up the coffee and the pastry in the morning. Because that's my routine and that brings me comfort. So when we talk about these other forms of withdrawal, we use the term abstaining or the practice of abstinence referring to the exclusion of things from our life for a period of time. This is not for the sake of being legalistic. Rather, this is for the sake of being clear in what we're talking about. And we're talking about going without food, without drink, excluding water for a period of time. So with the remaining time we have, I want to briefly sketch out a theology of fasting. I want to explore the purpose of fasting in the life of the believer, and I want to offer some practical instructions on fasting. Sound good? Simple roadmap of where we're going. Turn with me to Genesis 3. If you're new, we start many of our teachings in the book of Genesis. We believe that the scriptures are one unified story pointing to Jesus. And Genesis 1, 2, and 3 offer us a helpful archetype for our lives. Because the more you mull over Adam and Eve and the garden and the serpent and life with God, the more the garden narrative just makes sense. And so we start there as a constant archetype. In Genesis 1 and 2, we're introduced to this idea that humanity was made with incredible care and precision. Made by God to cultivate his good world as his representatives. But as we'll read in chapter 3, our inability to resist the temptation to take and eat will thrust the world into chaos. And that same chaos exists today. Let's look at Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was be to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The fall of humanity, what this story is typically typically called, is deeply connected to food, or more accurately, our inability to resist instant gratification. Again, the temptation of the snake is to gratify our 
desires. It is to redefine good and evil, not by the decree of God, but by our own instincts, by our own guts, by our own feeling, or whatever the voice of the snake would tell us. The temptation is for instant gratification over trusting our God. Or as Ignatius of Leola says, sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for us is our deepest happiness. I think the best way to understand the idea of sin or flesh is as disordered desires. Remember, in the Genesis account, God creates humanity with hunger, an appetite for fruit, and even provides an orchard filled with fruit. So the problem was not the desire. The problem was the misapplication of that desire. The Genesis narrative demonstrates that we have a propensity to abandon God's best in favor of a quick fix, instant gratification. You will be like God, the serpent says. And in a moment of betrayal, in a moment of that sounds pretty good to me, the world is plunged into chaos. And the ongoing story of humanity continues to be, can we resist the temptation to take and eat? To take and consume whatever catches our fancy, whatever brings us what we think will be the most happiness. Again, our strongest desires are not always necessarily our deepest desires. Can we resist the idea that the heart wants what the heart wants? For all of us, the answer is no at some level. We constantly struggle to resist that temptation, but we know of one man who did. Turn with me to Matthew 4. We've read this story a significant amount of times in this season because this is the quintessential Lent story. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And ever after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Ain't that the truth? And the tempter came to him. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus has gone without food for 40 days, and the serpent tempts him to turn rocks into a loaf of sourdough. Jesus, the new Adam, the new human, goes toe-to-toe with that same tempter from the garden. Unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus succeeds. Unlike you and me, Jesus succeeds. Where every other human being has failed, Jesus has the victory. And when we think Jesus would be at his weakest, 40 days and 40 nights without food, it turns out that Jesus is at his strongest. There is something about this wilderness experience for Jesus. Fasting, prayer, and the scriptures that Jesus was able to resist the lies of the evil one where everyone else failed. Despite his physical discomfort, for we know Jesus was in some discomfort, 
Jesus draws strength not from the physical matter of food, but from the love of the Father. He goes on to quote Deuteronomy 8.3, that man does not live by bread alone. This is a reference to when in the story of the Israelites, God miraculously provided something called manna. There's lots of guesses as to what manna is. The simple answer is we're really not that sure. I'm pretty certain Jesus didn't munch on manna the entire time, but rather he was strengthened by his heavenly father. From this wilderness experience, he emerges from that wilderness, working to announce and establish a kingdom in which we do not have to be mastered by our appetites. We do not have to be mastered by our flesh, but we can be free. And it's my conviction that Jesus sees fasting as an important discipline for his life and for his followers. Last passage, turn with me to Matthew 6, 16 through 18. Jesus is in the midst of his sermon on the mount. We spent a significant time in Matthew 6 last year. Actually, around this exact same time, I was giving a very similar teaching on fasting. So if you're like, that sounds familiar, it's because it is very familiar. But I asked Cassie, how much of my sermon can you remember? And her answer tells me, you all probably do not remember very much of my sermon on fasting. So I feel pretty comfortable going back to it. Jesus on fasting, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, you have, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your heavenly Father who is in secret. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, I want to be clear as we begin a quick discussion on the pragmatic aspects of fasting. There is never a point in the text, in all of Scripture, that say, you should fast. That doesn't exist. But based on this passage, when Jesus says, when you fast, I think it's a pretty safe assumption to assume that he thinks all of his disciples will be fasting. The context of this is just previously he talked about giving to the poor, prayer, and then he talks about fasting. And if you want to make the argument that fasting isn't commanded, well, I think you can begin to make the argument about giving to the poor and prayer, and that clearly does not make sense. So I think it's safe to assume that Jesus desires for his disciples to fast. And then he also assumes we'll screw it up. He says, when you fast, do not. A helpful reminder that Jesus is very aware of our condition. Let's start with that first assumption. Jesus assumes his disciples will fast because it will help us fight the flesh and feed on the spirit. Another passage, John 4, Jesus expresses this idea. He is an unlikely conversation with a woman at a well. 
And his disciples show up late after being in town, and they know how long Jesus has gone without food. So it's been a long day of traveling, and they show up, and they're like, this guy's gone without food for a while. And so his disciples say, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Classic disciples. So the disciples said to one another, who brought him food? Like, did you do this? Did he order? Like, how? What food? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. As much physical discomfort as Jesus might have felt, Jesus' deepest desire, the thing that he wanted more than anything, including food, was to abide in the love of his heavenly Father. And fasting is this discipline that helps us align both our spirit and our body in one unified hunger for God. Every hunger pain, an alarm reminding us to worship the God of the cosmos. Every groaning belly, a reminder that creation aches and moans and groans for redemption. Every pain, a reminder that we are to rely on God. Theologian Scott McKnight calls fasting body talk. This is what he writes. Fasting is body talk. Not the body simply talking for the spirit, for the mind, or for the soul in some symbolic way, but for the person, the whole person, to express herself or himself into complete expression. Fasting is one way you and I bring our entire selves into complete expression before God. The Bible, because it clearly advocates that the person, heart, soul, mind, spirit, body, is an embodied unity, assumes that fasting as body talk is inevitable. Fasting is our body expressing its desire for relationship with God. Remember, the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom is not simply an escape plan for our soul. It is the invitation for our whole being, body, soul, mind, to be renewed and transformed. Fasting helps us to express, to deepen, and to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain the kingdom. Fasting is this beautiful opportunity for soul and body to come into complete alignment, groaning and longing for God's kingdom to come. And in fasting, we learn once again to resist the urge towards instant gratification and replace it with a holistic desire for God. But again, Jesus assumes we will mess it up. He says, when you fast, do not. It's almost as if he anticipates that we might make it about our own pride or our own piety. We might make it about the hours that we've gone that are slightly better than the person next to us. And this is one of the many reasons why we are choosing to fast together as a community. It doesn't help me by saying I'm hungry because you're all hungry. It doesn't help whenever we are together 
yearning for the kingdom. There is no pride when everybody is hungry. There's no extra points or piety because you went a little bit longer. It's this invitation, let us do it together. Furthermore, fasting has a way of reminding us that we are still in progress. Honestly, every time I fast, I get short and petty with those around me. Don't ask Cassie about it because that'll be embarrassing. I'm quickly annoyed. I'm frustrated and I'm angry. I become anxious and overwhelmed. And as far as I think I've come, a short period of fasting reveals that I have a long way to go in my apprenticeship to Jesus. A short 12-hour period where I skip the bagel at lunch and I go into a meeting, I am quickly reminded, oh, oh man, as far as I thought I could go, I take a lot of comfort in what's going in my belly every single day. How fragile is my faith if skipping breakfast leads me to an unchristian posture? Fasting is this beautiful practice that uncovers the layers of our brokenness that we have hidden behind layers of comfort and layers of privilege. Fasting reveals just one of the ways we've isolated ourselves from suffering. Fasting rightly reveals the depth of our privilege and gives us an opportunity to embrace empathy for the poor and the hungry. Fasting gives us an opportunity to practice saying no to the desires of immediate gratification. And in fasting, body and spirit come into harmony, expressing a unified hunger for God and for God alone. Worship team, if you would join me. In the midst of Lent, as we commit ourselves to fasting, as we journey with Jesus toward the cross, towards resurrection, may we commit ourselves to fasting. For millennia, fasting, going without food or drink for a period of time, has been a core practice of the church. Now, the irony of this moment is not lost on me. I've spent about 30 minutes or so talking about going without food, and the response to this sermon is going to be, come receive bread and cup. The irony is not lost on me. But as St. Athanasius says, sometimes the call is made to fasting, and sometimes it is a call to feast. Throughout the first 300 years of the church's existence, Sundays were for feasting. Wednesdays and Fridays were reserved for fasting. So we should embrace fasting, but also feasting. That there is a rhythm in the life of the disciple that we come between fasting and feasting. And as we together gather as the body of Christ, today is not a day for fasting. Today is a day for feasting. So the irony of this is not lost on me. That I'll talk for 30 minutes about going without food. And then we will respond by taking food. I'm comforted a little bit by the fact that that piece of bread is not going to like totally fulfill all your hunger pangs. It is a reminder, even while we are fasting, that we live 
by the bread of God alone, by every word that comes from his mouth. So how do we practice fasting? This is about as easy as it gets in terms of the spiritual disciplines. Pick a day and try it. I suggest fasting twice a week for 12 or 24 hours. I would also suggest working your way up to that 24-hour period. Start with just 12 hours. Um, And a lot of this might not be drastically different from what you do in general. Like many of us just skip breakfast altogether and the first meal of the day is lunch. And the call is not all of a sudden to like abandon like and go, well, now I'm jumping up to 24 hours or multiple days at a time. The call is to be intentional with that. That instead of that 11 a.m. rumble being, okay, I need to start thinking about lunch. That 11 a.m. rumble being, okay, Lord, what do you have for me today? Every hunger pain turned into an opportunity to pray and to be reminded that we feast not on the substance of food, but on the word of our God. Most of the time for Cassie and I, this looks like us eating dinner the night before and either breaking our fast with a late lunch or waiting until dinner. Fasting is not a call to harm your body. Fasting is a call to practice liberation, to practice this submitting the whole of ourselves to God. And it would be irresponsible for me to talk about going without food and not to include this disclaimer. If you have ever suffered from an eating disorder or live with diagnosed medical conditions that preclude you from fasting, there is no shame. In all of this, there is grace and love and openness. Let's figure out how to do this together. So if that has been your experience, our plead, my request is please, let's talk before you do something that could damage your body. Fasting is a helpful practice given to us by Christ, but notice that fasting is not intended to harm the body. Rather, it is designed to bring the body and the soul into alignment. So our simple caution is, let's talk first. No shame, no embarrassment, let's just talk. For fasting is about freedom, not legalism. It's not about pride. Here's the reality. This week, you're going to be like, okay, I'm going to try this thing Alex spent his entire day talking about. I have 30 minutes in front of you each week. And I spent the entire time trying to convince you to skip breakfast and lunch on a Wednesday afternoon. And here's the reality. You're going to try it, and you will likely not feel like you're on cloud nine. You will likely not feel like God is walking right next to you. Each hunger pain will feel less like a call to prayer and more like a more reason to get angry. I become a terrible person on the road whenever I fast. This coming Wednesday will likely not feel like cloud nine. Just quick story on myself. 
On Friday, I was fasting and Cassie wasn't. We had just a mix up in our schedule. And I was preparing this very teaching, a teaching on fasting. And Cassie, without thinking, was like, hey, do you want leftovers for lunch? And I kid you not, my first thought was this teaching would be so much easier to write if I wasn't hungry. I kid you not, my first thought was, oh yeah, tacos sound good. This is not an instant transformation, but the gradual process of refining our desires and learning to hunger for God and for God alone. I think it's AA that started this phrase, keep showing up, it works. Keep showing up to the disciplines in your life. Keep showing up to the place of prayer and fasting. It might not feel like you're making a big difference week over week, but give it a month. Give it six months. Give it a year, and you will be shocked by the depth of relationship and the depth of beauty that God has brought about in your life. This is the process of all the spiritual practices, that they are not a quick fix to breaking all of our desires. Rather, it is the slow work of the Spirit. Let us commit ourselves to that slow work of becoming people at the end of our lives that say, I have given my all for you, my God. Let's pray. Father, it is in the way of Jesus, in his pattern and his example that we commit ourselves to going without food, of committing ourselves once again holistically, body, mind, soul, to hungering for you and for you alone. Lord, in this season of Lent, may you rekindle our desire for you. Some of us remember what it is to be a 16-year-old totally sold out to you and your mission. Some of us remember what it is to spend all of our time thinking about how we can serve you, but life, but work, but suffering has broken that desire in us. May this practice of fasting be a small step towards rekindling our hunger for you and for you alone. It's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.